On this weekend of Epiphany, it is uh, traditional to read this scripture about the three wise men, also known as the three kings or the three magi, depending on who you ask, in their journey to visit the Christ child. These men, Gaspar of India, Melchior of Persia, and Balthazar of Ethiopia, all hail from different parts of the ancient world, each of them schooled in reading the stars for portents of the future. They stand in contrast with the foil of this narrative, King Herod, the Jewish puppet king of the Romans who was renowned for his brutality. While these three scholars interpret patterns for understanding about the days to come, Herod clings desperately to the past, to his power, to the status quo, to how things already are. But of course, they won't stay that way for long. Today's reading is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that star, had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country on another road. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Looking back, there are moments in time 
that we would all just as soon forget. While the rest of the world has moved on, we will always feel a twinge of shame when those recollections surface, breaching the waters of memory like some creature of the deep that time has almost forgotten. For my part, looking back on that day, I have to confess that I was a coward. There was no excuse for my behavior, and even now I am ashamed to tell the tale. I was three years old. My mother pulled her car up alongside the entrance to the preschool, which had just opened its doors after a long summer. And despite all of the coaching and all of the hype for my first day of school, now that that moment had finally arrived, I was utterly terrified. My mom took my hand and led me inside down long corridors decorated with drawings and paintings and little murals of cartoon animals. I looked up and saw a giraffe with a big toothy grin towering over me, holding a sign that said, be cool, stay in school. And I squeezed my mother's hand a little tighter. As we walked into the classroom, the teacher, a kind woman with a warm smile, knelt down and welcomed me to her class. Friends, something broke inside of me that day. I burst into tears, and not the sort that engenders sympathy or compassion. No, these were the big, ugly sobs that just make everyone feel kind of uncomfortable and awkward. I can't go to school. I breathed heavily as the other kids started looking up from their toys with curiosity, and the teacher just sort of cringed as if she tasted something awful. Nearly hyperventilating, I thought about that cartoon draft in the hallway and his shameless propaganda. Sure, this place looked friendly enough on the surface, too friendly, like a Potemkin village hiding darker secrets. It's okay, honey, my mother gently encouraged me. Look at all of your new friends. I didn't want to look at them. I just wanted to go home. My mother left me there, which I'm sure was difficult for her, as the teacher tried to calm me down to no avail. Eventually, I can remember being taken aside into a separate room because my wailing was so disruptive. And there they tried to talk me down, but I was utterly inconsolable. They ended up having to call my mother, who had to come back and pick me up and who decided that maybe I needed another year before I was ready for school. And sure enough, when we tried this again a year later, I was totally fine. But I sometimes wonder what my life would have been like if I just managed to pull myself together that day. If I'd started school a year earlier, it would have changed everything. Just as a butterfly can flap its wings in Brazil and create the conditions for a hurricane in China, chaos theory dictates that early changes in a system can lead to dramatically different outcomes down the line. If I had graduated even a year earlier, I'd have likely ended up serving a different church if I'd felt called to ministry at all. 
That means I'd probably be living in a different state. I'd never have met my wife, never had fathered my children, and I probably wouldn't be standing here right now. I might be dead or in prison or living in a trailer in the desert outside of Las Vegas, working as an Elvis impersonator in a wedding chapel. <laughs> Which I'm not gonna lie, sounds pretty awesome. But I digress. Things worked out well for me, and I would not change them if I could. But don't we all have moments of frustration and despair when we wish our lives had turned out differently? And in those fleeting moments, I can't help but look back on that day and wonder what might have been. We have a tendency as human beings to cling to the past, to revel in past victory, to wallow in past shame, to question past choices. But as Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, life can only be understood by looking backward, but it must be lived looking forward. So I have to share a rather unpopular opinion, the sort that might elicit gasps of horror for more liturgically minded clergy and make them spit out their communion wine. I'm not a big fan of Epiphany. The Feast of Epiphany, which we celebrate 12 days after Christmas, was established in the fourth century as a kind of second Christmas, if you will, on account of some disagreement between the Roman church in the West and the Orthodox church in the East about the proper day to celebrate Jesus' birth. Late December, early January, Lacking consensus, the Roman church basically hedged its bets and decided to celebrate both with 12 days of feasting in between. Because why not, right? So having said that, what's my problem with Epiphany? What did Epiphany ever do to me? Well, you know, it's just that it strikes me as odd and a little awkward. We've celebrated Christmas. We've rung in the new year, made our resolutions, returned from our holiday travels and vacations, and now suddenly we're back at the manger again. Now don't get me wrong, I love Christmas, and I'm always sad when it's over. When the sun sets on that day and the wrapping paper has been discarded and the plates cleared and the kids are a bit melancholy because everything they eagerly anticipated is past, and the weight of another year stretches before us. But Epiphany just feels a little bit desperate. Like we can't let Christmas go. Like we're grasping at the magic of the moment, unable or unwilling to move on. It reminds me of my three-year-old self when I was dropped off that day, clinging to the life I knew, short as it had been, unable to bring myself to face the future. And ironically, that's what the story we read on Epiphany is really all about in some ways. It's a contrast of perspective with the Magi looking ahead and King Herod clinging desperately to the past. The Magi, three kings or three wise men, are scholars of astrology. I don't put too much stock in that stuff, personally. I stopped reading my horoscope years ago after it kept making, you know, predictions about new romance 
even though I was already married. In particular, the onion uh, had a horoscope for me. It predicted, you will meet the girl of your dreams Wednesday when she and five other EMTs try to free you from a hellish cocoon of molten glass. <laughs> While astrological divination is a dubious practice at best, it is at least forward thinking. The Magi study patterns in the stars to discern future events, and the mysterious light over Bethlehem is especially significant to them, heralding the birth of someone extraordinary. They call him the King of the Jews, foreshadowing his eventual arrest and execution and the charge against him nailed to the cross along with him, which of course reads, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now Herod, on the other hand, is firmly rooted in the status quo, stuck in the past. Like too many leaders around the world today, the king only cares about clinging to power and he will use unimaginable violence to do it. King Herod is so terrified of being usurped that he orders every child under the age of two in Bethlehem be slaughtered without prejudice. Some say that history doesn't repeat itself, but that it rhymes. And in a world like that, a world like this that we live in, looking ahead can be terrifying. I don't know about you, but ever since the pandemic, it feels like I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for another war to start another heat record to be broken, another planetary boundary to be breached, another shooting at a school like we saw in Iowa just this last week. And looking ahead, if I'm being honest, it's hard to imagine any of these problems or predicaments getting resolved this year. I'm no astrologer, and I can't predict the future, but things are spiraling out of control in the Middle East. The planet keeps getting hotter, and this year's presidential election looks to be, well, interesting. You don't need astrology to see patterns. You just have to look at the writing on the wall. And it's tempting to cower under the proverbial bed, to hide in memories of better times, to wish, perhaps, that things in the world had turned out differently. But we have to look ahead. I know that's a little rich coming from a guy who's stuck in the 80s, but I'm preaching to myself here too, okay? Regardless of our optimism or cynicism, our hope or our despair, the one thing that we can be sure of is that the future is coming. And I, for one, don't want to be caught with my head in the sand when it gets here. It's traditional on New Year's Eve to sing... Auld Lang Syne, that bittersweet Scottish tune that looks back on the year we just lived. It means literally old long since, or more colloquially, for old time's sake. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind as it goes, we raise a glass for days gone by. Pour one out, as it were, for everyone and everything that we've had to leave behind.
In much the same way, we gather at the communion table to remember and to commemorate Jesus' last supper with his disciples, to raise a cup to him. But the table stands in a cosmic place at the nexus of past and future. And as we gather here, we also look ahead. We're a forward-thinking church, after all, but what does that really mean? Among clergy, there's a much-dreaded phrase, but we've always done it that way. I often hear from pastors that are trying to lead their congregations forward in one way or another, but their people just don't want to change. But we've always done it this way, they'll say, clinging to whatever sacred cow they're unwilling to let go of. Of course, we all have things that we can't let go of, don't we? Resentment, guilt, shame, fear. And I wonder what might happen if we did. But we've always done it that way. I've never heard anyone say that here. This congregation recognizes that the world is in flux always, and we try to move with it, not conform to it, never, but to pivot and adapt, to ride the wave amidst the storm. To be a forward-thinking church is to look to the future with clear-eyed resolve, with courage and with faith, not to shrink from its terrors, but to face them head on to hope against hope, to be brave. And you can't be brave if you're not scared. Trusting that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus through the storm towards a better world than we've known. The Christmas feasts, the holiday revelry is over. Those tables have been cleared. Now we gather at a different table where we find sustenance for the journey ahead. Amen.